This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T, and you are listening to episode 43. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review the Planet Microcap podcast on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Ben Carlson, author of the book, A Wealth of Common Sense. I picked up Ben's book not too long ago and found it very useful and informative. The overarching theme throughout the book, as it states on the cover, is answering the following question. Why simplicity trumps complexity in any investment plan? I thought this would be a great topic to discuss with Ben for the podcast. The goal for this episode is to understand why simple solutions can be used to solve complex problems. As Warren Buffett states, investing is simple, but not easy. Thank you again for tuning into episode 43 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Ben Carlson. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey everybody, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'd like to take this moment to invite you to join me and some of the guests you may have heard on this podcast to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th, 2017 at none other than the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you'll get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with company management of undiscovered and well-known microcap companies. There are a lot of surprises in store, and you're not going to want to miss it. So join us at the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 26th through April 28th at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information, go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and register now to reserve your spot. See you in Vegas. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Ben Carlson on the program. He is the author of the book, A Wealth of Common Sense. Ben, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Glad to be here. It's great to have you on. So to get started, you know, what, what is your background and experience with microcap stocks? Well, you, you know, I've spent a ton of, ton of time studying, uh, you know, financial market history. And, and one of the things you learn once you, you realize how different stocks perform is that um, th- there's definitely this sort of small cap um, premium. And it can be argued for, for the reasons why I think, I think part of it has to do with the fact that there's a longer runway with these stocks. Uh, they might be a little riskier. Um, they have less coverage by Wall Street analysts, and there's there's obviously more opportunities because there's there's larger number of s- smaller stocks, depending on how you define it. Um, 
And, and so I've definitely spent my time, you know, sort of tilting my portfolios um, personally and professionally to sort of smaller cap stocks. Um, uh, I dabbled a little bit in sort of stock picking early in my career, realized it just really wasn't for me. So now I'm more of a of a, a basket holder of, of stocks, if you will, of these, of these smaller names um, in a diversified approach. But um, I definitely think it's an interesting space and one of the maybe one of the few places left in the market where there you can really find an edge. The the main the main reason I wanted to have you on today is that you are the author of this book uh, called A Wealth of Common Sense, which I read and uh, it's great. And I wanted to know, you know, why why did you write A Wealth of Common Sense? Well, you know, I, I I've been in the, the finance industry for probably close to twelve years now, and I I get a lot of questions from friends and family members and people outside of the world of finance. And and for people on the outside looking in, it it seems like a very complex place. Um, it, it's kind of hard to understand. There's there's a million different voices out there trying to tell people what to do. And um, my whole thing was just try to explain the financial markets and the investment process in plain English, so so people can understand them. So actually, before I I wrote the book, I, I asked Jason Zweig, who's a um, longtime columnist for the Wall Street Journal. I, I said, you know. Uh, you, you know what? What should my goal here be? How should I? How should I approach this book? Because I've I've never been much of a writer. I want to sort of get my ideas out there. And he, he kind of told me, you know, imagine that your grandmother came to you and wanted to know ten things about investing that she could both understand and that she needs to understand. And what would you tell her? And that was kind of a great way to frame it. Is is you know how do I, how do I take these complex topics and make them simpler for people to understand? And and what I found is that I my my audience was I was hoping to help out people who are not in finance, but I've actually found that. A lot of people inside the world of finance have been drawn to the ideas too, because you know a lot of them need to learn how to more effectively communicate with with their clients or their prospects, and sort of helping them understand. So, um, so, so I think the 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 idea was really to just take you know these complex problems that that I don't think really require complex solutions, and and explain them in plain English to people. Mm-hmm. And what? Just to give an example, you know, before we get into the, you know, the nitty gritty of the book itself, you know, what are some examples of these like complex problems or these seemingly complex problems that people think that they have to have these complex solutions for, you know, because I mean, especially within our within our millennial generation, you know, you think about Wall Street, and you're like, oh, this all just seems so esoteric and difficult when you know if you if you pick up a wealth of common sense it's really if if you read through you know you you see that it's really not yeah well i think the i think the hardest part so the the old buffett quote is something along the lines of investing is is simple but not easy and so, so i think i think it's tough for people because they they assume that they have to make it sophisticated and complex to succeed and they have to change strategies with every different uh macro environment and, and every time the stock market changes regimes, they have to try something new and they have to invest in the hot, you know, the, the best performing funds or the, the fat ETFs. And so I think it's just hard for people to stick with, with one approach. And they, they assume that they, they need to constantly be morphing and changing their strategy. And what that usually leads to is a performance chase. Um, and most of the time people end up fighting the last war instead of getting ready for the next one or, or just it, it's really hard for people to just sit still and, and stick with one overarching philosophy um, because they, they assume that, that things are constantly changing and different. And, and so it's hard for people to be consistent in the markets. Mm-hmm. So get, getting right into the, um, we're almost going to go chapter by chapter because there's, there's so much in each part and, you know, I want to cover as much as we can, but I know it'll be, <laughs> it'll be difficult to cover everything, but I think we'll, we'll do the best we can. So, so to start off, you know, 
what are the four basic abilities that all investors must possess in order to be successful? Yeah, and I kind of borrowed this uh, from William Bernstein, who is another author who I think does a great job of explaining things in sort of an easy-to-understand manner. And he wrote this in his book, uh, The Investor's Manifesto, which is a really good one. He, he wrote it right after the crisis. And I think he was trying to kind of explain to people, you know, what's going what's going to happen now when, when people were really worried about how the financial markets were going to react. But so he, he laid out four different things. And, and the first one was pretty simple in common sense. And he said, you, you know, you need a you need to possess an interest in the process. And, you know, obviously it, that seems obvious to people. If you don't enjoy something, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to do a very good job at it. But, you know, he said his quote was that people enjoy finance about as much as they enjoy, you know, getting a root canal at the dentist. So so for a lot of people, it's, it's tough to have that interest. Um, the other simple one is just that you need some sort of math horsepower. And so I think you need to understand the laws of probability and statistics. And and the reason for this is because, as everyone knows, the, the future is, is always uncertain. So um, anyone, I think, who goes into any investment with 100% certainty is, is bound to be disappointed because um, you, you just never know what's going to happen. There's, there's just a lot of luck involved in the markets and, and a lot of stuff that's out of your control. So I think you have to understand how to think in terms of probabilities and, and make good decisions based on those probabilities, understanding that you're, you're never going to be right all the time. But uh, I think if you're right most of the time, that's about as, as much as you can hope for. Uh, the, the third one was just a, a firm grasp of financial history. And, and I think a lot of people um, miss this one. I, I think it, it really makes sense to understand, you know, things like the Great Depression, uh, the 1987 crash, the 1980s and 90s bull market, the 1960s bull market, and I could go on and on. Um, and, and the thing that you learn from studying all these things, you know, it, it's, it's tough when you're, you're not there at the time because, um, you know, experiencing them at the time is, is much, you know, much more powerful. But um, my takeaway is that, that things are both always and never different this time. You know, that's one of the, the famous quotes that uh, John Templeton said, the four most dangerous words in investing are this time is different. Um, but but my, the thing that I take away is that it's, it's always different because, you know, things are constantly changing and evolving. Um, but it's never different because, you know, human nature is the same. And so things are always going to go a little further in each direction than, than people would assume the fundamentals would dictate. So I think it, it makes sense to understand that uh, the, the sort of cycle of fear and greed can take things much further than you, uh, than you would think possible. Um, and then finally, the last one is just bring it all together. Even if you find it enjoyable, you're really good in math, you understand financial market history, um, if you don't have the, the emotional discipline to execute your plan, you know, come hell or high water, it's, it's going to be tough to, it's going to be tough because the, the greatest investment strategy in the world is, is all for naught if you, if you're not able to follow it. Um, and so I think a lot of times the, the, they say the old statement is that the, the enemy of good is perfect and people trying to, uh, to implement the perfect investment strategy is tough because it's, it's hard for people to stick with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, so those are the, the kind of four abilities that, that Bernstein laid out for us. Why do you think it's so difficult to follow, uh, to, for some people to follow, like even if they've gone through even a bull and a bear market, you know, and they saw their philosophy works, but yet still some, I, I would say within some people's psychology, they think they now have to change because it might be a new type of bull market or a new type of bear market. You know, like what, what is it? In that, and I think you talk about it in the book a little bit um, when it comes to psychology, the psychology of an investor. You know, what's your take? Yeah, it's it, it's tough, and I, I think one of the one of the tough things these days, and obviously, I think you know, 
it's in our human nature to be to be a little biased in this case in that we're we're always kind of trying to make these short-term decisions with long-term capital um but but part of the problem i think is that there's so many choices these days and it's both a blessing and a curse because um it's never been cheaper for investors to invest you know as far as uh trading commissions and etfs and index funds and mutual fund fees and everything is coming down you know seemingly uh by the week and it's, it's a great thing that you know we now have much easier access to the capital markets than we did in the past and in different strategies and different information and research and analysis we did in the past. Um, but it's, it's always kind of, you know, chasing the hot dot where there's, there's always something new in, in tempting to go into. And so it's really tough. I think one of the hardest things to do is, is to do nothing. And, and I, I like to say that, you know, doing nothing itself is a decision and it's hard for people to just sort of sit on their hands and not do anything when that's what your your plan tells you to do and just have some patience and and relax because there, there's always something that's going to be someone's going to be getting richer than you at any moment during the day and and it's really tough to, for people to sit there and see that and and just stick with in their own sort of circle of competence mm-hmm. yeah like the worst is when you hear you know or or the worst is when like you you had an idea and you just didn't pull the trigger and you're just like damn yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I like. Yeah. I like to say that. Like the way I explain it to to like clients is that investing in itself is is a form of regret minimization because you, you're always going to regret something. Either you're going to regret not being in enough. You're going to regret being out too much of the stock market. Um, you're going to regret some of your losses. You're going to regret some gains that you didn't make. So I think it's just it's really tough to find that perfect balance and equilibrium of of just sort of um, you know balancing out that regret to the point where um, you're going to understand that there's always going to be more opportunities, um, and you're not going to be able to hit them all. But it, yeah, it's it's a tough, it's a tough position to be in. I gotta say, we're I know we're only like about ten minutes into this interview, but you just said the whole the line of the interview just now. I'm about to use that on like everything. The investing is about regret minimization. I I love that line. That's so good. Yeah, yeah. I can't I can't exactly <laughs> take full credit for that. I think I actually read that from uh, Jeff Bezos, but I'll. Uh, you know, it's sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, I guess. But uh, it, yeah, it's, it is a perfect analogy, I think, because people look at it in the other way instead of sort of doing the monger where you invert and try to uh, look at things from from the uh, backwards perspective. Right. So uh, in in chapter one, um, I've discussed this topic a couple of times with various guests as well, and and especially as it pertains to microcap stocks. In your opinion, in your opinion, who has the advantage? institutional or individual investors and does mr market favor one over the other yeah well i think it there, there's definitely differences and i the way i like to approach it is looking at the the mistakes that people can make and, and i think that individuals it's for most individuals it's typically ignorance that gets them in trouble um they either don't don't have enough time or they don't have the skill set to um to approach the markets and with professional money managers it's typically the other end of the spectrum where it's overconfidence and so so they think they're too good or too smart um so, so i think for those individuals who can sort of put in the time and effort um there, there's definitely you know some some advantages there and like if, if you're talking about the microcap space i mean first of all that's a place where most institutional investors can't go so my career has been spent in this space and you know you have these billion or multi-billion dollar funds and if they're investing in in smaller or microcap companies, they they really just can't they they can't move the needle because um, the 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 space is too small, and and so it's it's hard for them to invest too much money in this space. So they they really can't do it because it would be such a small allocation 
Um, so, so most institutional investors actually, you know, ignore this space or underweight it. Um, so, so I do think that there is some some opportunity there, and and I think that you know the last true remaining edge in the market is just having a long term time horizon, and and I think a lot of professional money managers aren't allowed that because of career risk, and so they're they're constantly chasing monthly or quarterly performance numbers. So I think as an individual, y- your opportunity really is to have that long term mindset because I think it's the one thing that can't really get you know arbitraged away by computers or algorithms or professional investors who are acting on, you know, better research and analysis and information. Mm-hmm. So, ben, I mean, Ben, you're, as you said in your intro, you know, you're, you're more on the institutional side. Like, how do you reconcile this? Cause you know, you're fully aware of the, you know, of the advantage to having more of a long-term strategy versus not, you know, what, what's, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I mean, part of it really is just sort of about, understanding yourself. And I think with a lot of, you know, professional funds, when you're dealing with them, I think a lot of it has to do with, with, you know, effective communication and, and just helping them understand, you know, the pros and cons of certain strategies and, and understanding, you know, when it makes sense to do something and when it doesn't. And I think the, I think half the battle is, is having a plan in place, you know, in the first place and, and having things documented to understand, you know, when you'll act and when you won't, depending on what happens in the markets. So I think if you can sort of document your, your process ahead of time and, and know when you're going to, when you're going to act and when you're going to sit on your hands, I think that that helps a lot. Um, but, but I think it's sort of an ongoing, you know, communication thing where you're, you're really consistently hammering home your, your process and your philosophy and getting people on the same page with you. Mm-hmm. So, and then, so in the next chapter, you talk about um, some of the positive traits required to be a successful investor, and then inversely, you talk about some of the negative habits uh, investors uh, fall into. And we talked about a few of these on the negative side. So, you know, maybe just what what are some of the the main, you know, both on the positive side and the negative side in terms of the traits that uh, investors, uh, a successful investor, should have, and and bad investors sometimes uh, <laughs> exhibit. You know, what what are some of these traits? Yeah, I think the, the the first one is just this, this idea of emotional intelligence. So, um, you, you know, I think people worry too much, especially in the finance realm, about being the smartest guy or gal in the room. Um, but I think at a certain point, you know, being having that high level of intelligence, I think there's 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 a law of diminishing returns there, um, where where it matters much more your emotional intelligence, you know, your temperament, your self awareness, um, your ability to to have discipline and patience. Um, because of course, you know, nothing works all the time. So, so I think having, having that, that sort of temperament to be able to, to sit through and, and be calm during periods of chaos when other people are, are sort of losing their mind, I think, I think it's, it's hard to quantify that. Um, I, I think the other big thing is the, my favorite saying is that the, the three most important words in investing are, I don't know. So, so I think it, it it's hard for people, you know, with, you know, a, a really good education and, and working with really smart people in the investment world, um, people want to be an expert on all things. And I don't think I think you don't have to do that, you know, to succeed in this game because as long as you know your sort of circle of competence and uh, know what you don't know, I think that's I think that's a huge edge in in just sort of filtering out things that that don't you know really make sense to you to invest in. And I think that that helps a lot, sort of get rid of a lot of the noise out there. Um, as far as the, the negative side of things, and I, I, I used a quote from Munger in this, which I like, he, he said, if you, if you can get really good at destroying your own wrong ideas, that's a great gift. So, so I think half the battle is, 
is just avoiding mistakes instead of trying to be, you know, a world beater in the markets. And so, so I think it's, it's it kind of comes down to a little bit what we've talked about, you know, I think people really want to just get rich quickly and it's hard for people to take a long-term approach and allow compounding to work in their favor because it takes a long time to see the, the fruits of your labor from that. Um, and I also think a lot of people take the markets personally. Um, if something goes in their favor or if something goes wrong, you know, a lot of people are, tend to um, ascribe, you know, their, their, their great investments to skill, but their poor investments to bad luck. So I think it's, it's hard to take the market personally like that. You know, the market is not out to get you. It's going to do what it's going to do. So you have to invest sort of as it is and not as you, as you wish it would be. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say of all the trade? Like, cause I actually, I kind of want to hit more on this, the, the, uh, emotional intelligence, because I feel like that's something that, um, you know, as, as an individual investor, especially, I feel like that that's one that a lot of people are most su- either susceptible to, or they're, they, they have a high degree of it that helps them along the way. So can you speak a little bit more to this? You know, what, what type of emotional intelligence are we talking about? What, maybe an example or something? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think just having a good understanding, I think self-awareness is one of the biggest things in just understanding how emotions affect you and how they affect other people. So, you know, I think it, it's good to know yourself, but you also have to know how other people are going to react to the markets and, and pretty much not allowing yourself to get drawn into that, that sort of herd mentality. Um, so, so I think you have to sort of have some self-reflection and self-regulation and sort of understanding your, you know, the ability to control your impulsive decisions, mm-hmm. um, which is tough. It's tough to look yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I'm, I know here's my limitations. I know I'm not good at this, so I probably shouldn't try to do it. Um, that's kind of a tough conversation to have with yourself. So I think that self-awareness and understanding where your strengths lie and where your weaknesses lie, um, I, I think that's that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Like it's like I, like I remember last year, like for instance, like because uh, usually you're you're kind of faced with this issue during like uh, maybe there's a big international crisis or you know something happened abroad like for instance i remember last year with brexit you know you saw the market dip like 600 points or something like that and you know you you kind of have it's like a test in and of itself like okay what do i do in this in moments like these you know would would you say like that's that's when usually you're faced with those types of uh you know but i mean for some life-altering decisions but others like okay this is happening. Let's take a second. What's going on here? Yeah, and I think that's where the whole idea of like having a process over outcomes mentality works because you know the problem with the markets is you're never going to have that counterfactual. Like let let's say the market did crash 20 or 30% following Brexit and all the worst fears that everyone had came true. You know that obviously looking back on it now is easy because that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um but but I don't think you can really judge your decisions based on those market outcomes because you have no control over what the market's going to do. So so I think just having the the process in place where you're going to do the same thing regardless of what the market does. Um, and so, you know, you have these, these sort of guidelines in place ahead of time where if the market falls, you know, 10% or if the stock falls 10 or 20%, I'm going to buy more or I'm going to sell here. So I think just having those, those sort of regulators in place ahead of time and, and so not really, you know, so every once in a while the market is, is just going to tank for, for whatever reason. So I think, Understanding what you're going to do ahead of time is a huge part of the, the sort of process over outcomes um, mindset. Right. right. Okay. So, so in chapter three, you you stated, and I quote, "True risk is that which is irreversible." End quote. You know what? What do you mean by this? 
Yeah, and this was another something I, I stole from, you know, I've, I've been referencing Warren Buffett a few times here. Um, so he has this, this quote that people reference quite often. He says, I have two rules for investing. The first rule, number one, is never lose money. And then number two is never forget rule number one. And I, I think people read this quote the wrong way because, um, you know, Buffett's lost plenty of money over his career. Um, you know, I showed in the book, he's had four 40% plus drawdowns in Berkshire since the late 80s alone. Um, but but the, the thing is that he never sold, so he didn't sort of lock in his losses. Um, so, so the way I view it is volatility in the market is temporary, but, you know, panicking or getting really greedy um, can have a lasting impact when you make a huge mistake at the wrong time. Um, so, so those sort of panicky um, decisions you make, that's the stuff that's, that's you know, that, that, uh, that's irreversible. So I think when you make a poor decision at the wrong time, that's, that's when true risk sort of rears its ugly head. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what do you tell someone who like, let's say, let's say they're, they, they have their portfolio and let's say they're in a stock where it's, it's down 20, 30% and they're already, they're just like, Oh, I hate this stock. I hate this stock. And, you know, and, and they're thinking about getting out because they want to buy another stock because, you know, everything all they, they're already fully weighted you know, or, or they have all their cash deployed, you know, what would you tell somebody in that case, you know, who's like, all right, I just, but, eat, but nothing's changed in the company. Itself. Yeah. You know, I, I think the, the, the ability to know when to sell is, is really tough because I think it's, I think it's much easier for people to buy, you know, mm-hmm. to buy beaten down names or high quality companies. That's the easy part. Like knowing when to sell, that's, I think that that's what can separate a lot of investors from others. Um, so, so I think in, in that sense, when you, you know, you, you have, you know, you don't have a lot of capital to deploy. I think you really have to just look at your opportunity set and understand, you know, if I'm starting from square one and I, I'm just going to ignore the fact that this stock is down 20 or 30%, if I'm having this 5 or 10% slug of capital to put to work, would I put that to work in this company again? Or would I, are there better investment opportunities out there? So I think you just have to have this, this idea of having no sunk costs where not even putting the fact that you've already spent money and lost it in the stock, you know, so I, so I think you have to, to avoid that mentality of trying to figure out, well, do I wait and hold it until it gets back to, to even? So I think you have to just always sort of view your portfolio as, you know, starting from, from ground zero. And, you know, would I put money in this today if I had the money between this choice in cash or another stock or another, you know, security. Mm-hmm. And, and, and going back to this idea of, of risk again, um, how would you how would you say it's i mean this might be somewhat of an obvious question and and you know uh, but you know how would you assess risk in terms of the different asset classes you know versus you know when you talk about micro caps versus small caps and mid caps i mean you know as someone who's kind of gone across the board you know what how do you assess risk and and how and and also how it pertains to the individual investor yeah, well, I think if you're talking about different sort of uh, market caps and asset classes within stocks, I, I think you just have to um, understand that with with much smaller names, you're going to be dealing with a much wider dispersion of results between the sort of best and worst performers. So, I, so I think that gives you more opportunity to make money, but maybe more opportunity to lose money as well. So, you really, I think you really have to know what you're doing. Um, so, so I think that's the, the. It's just you know I think things are going to be more volatile in that space. So I think, you know, going into that with that mindset, understanding that ahead of time is 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 a big part of it. Just knowing that you know it's going to be 
part of you know the experience of that, especially if you're in it for the long haul. Um, you're just gonna have to be willing to accept volatility. But another sort of um, idea from from William Bernstein, who I mentioned earlier, he, he says that there's there's two types of risk. There's shallow risk, which is basically you know short-term volatility, you know a bear market that eventually is going to come back. And then there's there's deep risk, which is which is the risk again that that this sort of irreversible that you you know you make a poor mistake at the wrong time or the the company um, goes out of business or something you know really terrible happens so so I think you have to sort of understand the difference between those two risks. Mm-hmm. So in in the book you also talk about you know various uh, Wall Street myths and uh, this is one of my favorite chapters actually and and um, you know I've, I've heard most of them. And and what what would you say? What myth would you say most investors are susceptible to? And in microcap stocks, what 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 would you say is the biggest myth out there? You know, so just for investors overall, I think the one that that I that I sort of latch onto most is that that people always say that the stock market is like a casino. Um, but I don't I don't really buy that one because I, I don't think that. An intelligent investor is really gambling. Maybe there's some speculation involved because you never know what's going to happen in the future. But um, you know, at least at the casino, you know what your probabilities are. You you know exactly what your chances of winning and losing are. Um, in the stock market, you don't know that. Um, but but I don't really follow the the idiom that uh, the market's rigged. You know, I think a lot of times you know our emotions are rigged, but not the market. So so I don't I don't really buy the fact that the stock market is a casino. I think. You know, cycles are just a natural extension of of a capitalist system. So, so like that's just something you have to get used to the the ebbs and flows of of things going up and down. Um, I guess the the biggest myth for for microcaps, I think there are a lot of sort of myths out there, and I think a lot of people um, that that don't understand the space probably assume that there, there's a lot of um, sort of scammy stuff going on. And there's there's these pump and dump things, and I think a lot of that has probably been cleaned up. I'm I'm sure you can talk to this more than I can, that there's there's still some of that around there. But, um, you know, a lot of these are, are businesses that um, are, are potentially one day going to grow to be much larger businesses. So I think that there's there's just a much larger runway in that space. Um, and again, there's, there's going to be a lot more failures there as well, because, you know, dealing with larger mid-caps, you're dealing with much more mature companies. Um, so again, I think the, the range of results is much bigger. But I, but I think... Uh, I think there's there's probably too many people that it, that that you know correlate microcap investing with um, penny stocks, and I think that, that you know that's that's just not the same thing. I couldn't agree with you more. That's actually a very good assessment, and, and it's not and it's it's the myth is also derived from I'd say a lot of how the media has been represents like when penny stocks is in the media, which is also rare. Um, <laughs> you you see yeah. it in like Wolf of Wall Street, and you know poor examples like that and more bad actors, you know, and that's, and that's really the problem when it comes to microcap investing and why it's not as well known as it maybe should be, you know, yep. a, as a place to, to at least get started, you know? Um, I mean, you, 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 I, I don't know, you do you agree with what I'm saying there? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think especially for people trying to understand, you know how the markets work and how businesses work. I think I think you can do a lot worse than than sort of dabbling in stock picking, especially when you're first starting out, because I think it really helps you understand how businesses function and how the, the sort of market as a whole works. Um, so, so I, you know, I, I think even using part, you know, if, if you're even if you're not uh, willing to devote your entire sort of, um, you know, because I think a lot of investing comes down to time management too and how much you're willing to put into it. But I think even if you're not willing to put in the time to be a full time 
you know, stock picker, which which I think if you if you're gonna do it, I think you have to be able to put in the time and effort. Um, I think even taking a small portion of your capital and trying to understand businesses, I think it's a great way to learn how how markets and the businesses function. Mm-hmm. So when when defining one's microcap investment philosophy, you know, what questions do you think we should be asking ourselves? You know, I, I think from a high level, I think a, a lot of people they they sort of miss the broad stuff up front, like understanding their philosophy and the policies that they're going to implement, and they just want to get their hands dirty and, and, and make some money and, and pick stocks. And so I think it really, I think you have to really understand your core investment beliefs and what they are. You know, you know how many how many stocks you own, when you're going to buy and sell. I think having those sort of guidelines in place up front, I think that that's part of it. I think you have to understand the potential risks anytime you're going to pick an investment philosophy. Um, you have to understand whether it, it'll suit your personality or your individual circumstances. Um, because again, if it can be the greatest strategy in the world, but if it's not suited for you, um, it's never going to work because you're not going to be able to stick with it. Um, and, and then I think you need to know, you know, what are your constraints for turning that overarching philosophy into an actual portfolio? Because, you know, there's a big difference between a philosophy and a strategy. Um, philosophy are kind of your, your broad values and principles and a strategy is, you know, how you're going to actually implement it in the real world and, and follow it. So, so I think understanding, you know, uh, how to turn that philosophy into a, into an individual portfolio is, is key too. Mm-hmm. So, so if, if, if I could just follow up on that real quick, like what, what's, what do you think is like the main question that you should be asking yourself is, and I, I think you mentioned in, in the book, something along the lines of like, you know, how much are you willing to lose? I, I think that I, I might be a little off, but what what was that like? That one main question we should all be asking ourselves. Yeah, I think I honestly think it just the main question comes down to: Can I stick with this strategy? Mm. You know, can I can I sort of tune out the noise and not care what everyone else is doing and just understand? You know, is this for me um, personally, and and not really care what everyone else is doing and not have you know that sort of greed and fear and envy of whatever else it's doing. I think just understanding whether it's, it's right for you or not. How, how do you t- tune out the noise? I know we all have different ways of doing it, but you know, like for you, for instance, I'm sure that was a process over time. You know, what, what, you know, how, how do you tune it out? You know, I, I think that there's, there's a couple ways. I think for some people it, it comes down to just being completely ignorant and, and not looking at their statements very often and just letting things go and just you know, looking at their account statements once a year and completely tuning it out because the, the people that get into trouble are the ones that just start paying attention when things start to go wrong because then they make emotional decisions and they, they're not really thinking things through. For, from my perspective, for me personally, what's helped is that I'm involved in the industry and I, I see this stuff every day and I read it and I'm writing about it. And it's almost like um, I'm so immersed in it that I can kind of see through and I have like a better BS detector where I, I know when something is not for me or it doesn't make sense. Um, so so I think it's almost like an, an all or nothing proposition for some people where either you completely ignore it or you, you follow it so closely that it doesn't impact you as much anymore. Um, so I think it kind of comes down to understanding yourself. But but I think for, for most investors, it comes down to having, you know, a filter in place mm-hmm. and understanding, you know, what you're going to own, why you're going to own it, and what you know. More importantly, what you won't own and why you're going to avoid it. So, so I think that's that's half the battle is just is just having those filters and guidelines in place to understand, you know, the places that you you won't go into, even though maybe other people are, and it sounds exciting and, and new and interesting, but it's not for you. Mm-hmm. 
No, this is. Uh, I'm glad you. I, I'm really happy that you you brought you you uh, brought that up and this concept and and your experience because this is one concept we talk about a lot on here, and I, I enjoy hearing how everybody does try and tune it out because it's 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 it varies. You know, on what it's from one person, it's you know you know I delete my just my Twitter on my phone for <laughs> for a week. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what you have to. Some people have to. You know, I, I go to the um, the gym at lunch every day. Mm-hmm. And I see these people running on the treadmill, and um, they put a towel over it so they can't view the time, mm-hmm. and and that's like their, their that's like their psychological trick to maybe run a little longer because otherwise they're going to stare at the, the clock and it's it's going to kill them. So so I think something like that where people have to figure out you know how do I sort of blind myself to my own biases and and sort of you know avoid it at all costs whatever my sort of vice is or whatever. So. That's a good trick. I'm gonna do the towel over the time thing. I'm I'm always susceptible to that. One. Yeah, <laughs> I try and time it when there's a game on. You know what I mean? But uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> so um, so in chapter seven, you you where you discuss the concept of uh, asset allocation. You know what what are your thoughts on diversification versus a concentrated portfolio? And I'm gonna start and I'm gonna preface this with you know I I we talked about this a lot on the podcast, but. You know, in your book, you have a, a very interesting perspective on this. So, um, with that, you know, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I definitely my my perspective is is from a diversified investor, where where I think diversification is my way of admitting I I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. Um, but but I think it really comes down to understanding yourself again, because I I started out when I started out investing on my own. I I very much ascribe to the the Warren Buffett Charlie Munger approach of you know owning a few core businesses and, and following those businesses. And I, I just quickly realized as much as I wanted to to do that, it was kind of fitting a square peg in a round hole for me. And it just didn't, it didn't work. Um, and, and so I, I sort of, you know, diversify widely now. I, I think in terms of thinking about, you know, a concentrated versus a diversified portfolio, I think one of the things people have to realize is that, you know, you, you give yourself a much higher chance of outperforming with a concentrated portfolio um, but there's again, it's also a wide range of results where you could underperform as, as well too. There's actually a study in one of the one of my favorite books about Buffett. It's called the Warren Buffett Portfolio uh, by Robert Hagstrom. I don't know if you've read it, but it's it's probably one of my favorite books about him. And he did this study where he took these computer simulated portfolios. You know, so he took the Russell 3000, you know, 3000 largest stocks, and he he simulated portfolios, and he he did one of 250 stocks, one with, had 100 stocks. There was another one that had 50 stocks and one that had 15 stocks. And what he found was that by far the biggest range of results was the one with 15 stocks, which makes sense, whereas the 250 stock portfolio was more like a closet index fund. Um, uh, but but also the 15 stock portfolio outperformed much more than the, the, the larger ones. So so I think that's just the understanding that you have to have is that you're, you're going to give yourself probably a more volatile ride that way. Um, but if, if you kind of know what you own and why you own it and you, you understand that going into it, you know, I think that that is, you know, been shown to be one of the, the, the ways to sort of beat the market if that's what you're going for. So, so I think it just really comes down to understanding if that's for you and if, if you have the, the sort of time and energy to put in the, you know, the time to do that. Well, I, and I wanted to bring up this point because it kind of ties, it, it ties back to what you said, um, or to what what's written in the book, I think I think it was either in the preface or chapter one, um, where it's this idea of you know there's there's different tiers of investors that you 
point out, you know, like there's the 10% that are like the really successful ones. And then there's, I, I forgot what the percentage was, but it's like you're doing just a little bit better. And, right. and it, and it seems that that kind of ties in with this, um, this diversification strategy, whereas more of the concentrated, you know, what you would say is like the, the 10% above. I mean, that, that might be just my own derivation, but you know, would, would you, how would you, you know, calculate that? Yeah. So there's one of my favorite quotes. There's this quote from, from Benjamin Graham. And he, he said, you know, to achieve satisfactory investment results is much easier than most people realize, but to achieve superior results is much harder than it looks. So, so I think people just have to understand that, that continuously going for the home run is, is going to be something where, you know, you're, you're probably going to strike out to a lot. Um, so you have to understand whether if, if you're going to go for those home runs, you have to be willing to accept failure much more often. Whereas uh, on the other perspective, you could, you could be going for more for singles and doubles and being a consistent investor. So I think it's just about sort of understanding where you fall on that, on that spectrum, you know, and it's a lot of that has to do with your own sort of risk tolerance and risk profile and time horizon, um, and sort of personal makeup for, for accepting those. Mm-hmm. So Ben, I, this is a fun question that I love asking all my guests. You know what? What's what's an experience that you in the markets that you would say that you learned the most from? You know what? What was that for you? You know, for me, I think it was definitely you know early on in my career. Um, I, I took a new job um, with an endowment fund in July of 2007, which was about <laughs> three months before. You know the market completely collapsed, and so so I think living through the the crisis at kind of at, at a younger age, at a younger point in my career, was was really helpful for me because um, I, I just saw all these all these people who um, who had been in the industry for decades and decades um, making mistake after mistake, um, and so so I realized that that ex- experience can help in the markets, but there's always going to be something new that comes along that will completely you know blindside you. So, so I think coming from that perspective of of never having lived through something like that and seeing it at a young age, um, I mean, I I learned a lot from that that experience of of seeing how how markets react to a crisis mm-hmm. and uh, and getting to, again an understanding of things can go a lot things can get a lot worse or better than than you than you expect. So, um, so so I think going through that and understanding the the emotions of what happens in a panic was was really helpful for me. So can you draw back on like one moment where you were, where like you found yourself just being like, whoa, this is, this, this is a, when this happens, like, wow, I can't believe this, this is happening right now. I'm going to, I'm going to bank this one for, for a later time period. Like during, during that time, you know, what do you, do you have one where, where, where that happened to you? Yeah. I mean, there, there was definitely times where, where we would get on a, you know, especially I remember in. September and October, when the government was trying to pass all these these different programs to sort of bail the market out and bail out the banks, um, you, you know, we we t- we had a few instances where we had we had a fund or two um, that that was basically about to go under, and um, you realize that that all the stuff that you see in these pitch books from these these investors about their process and about you know how they they have an edge and, and all this stuff i think you know sometimes that goes out the window when they make mistakes when they get over leveraged um or they invest in things sort of that they they that they never should have in the first place and they didn't really follow their process so um we definitely had some some scary talks with with some some money managers um where it, it was kind of hard to believe um that you know 
a few weeks ago, they were trying to convince us that everything was fine. And then two or three weeks later, um, they're, they're close to going under, especially with some of the banks and stuff that we worked with. Um, it, it was really a, just a crazy, crazy time to, to be involved in. Mm. So, so Ben, what, what are, are the main takeaways you'd like anyone who has read or would like to read your book to walk away with? Yeah, you know, I, I think that, you know, my, my main takeaway from, from all my experience in the markets is just that, that I think, I think a, a simpler approach is, is better for the majority of investors. Um, again, I think that, you know, complex markets don't always require complex solutions, um, but uh, but on the on the other hand, you know, a simple approach, you know, I think I think is harder in many ways because it's definitely not easy. Um, it's not easy to sort of you know follow a set plan when everyone else is is doing what they what they want and sort of not following the herd. So I, so I think um, that that sort of whole notion of of investing being simple but not easy because anytime you know you invest in the stock market, it's it's impossible to make money without losing money on occasion, and it could be that you're going to lose a lot of money. So I think having the sort of um, intestinal fortitude to to stick with it through something like that, where you where you know you're going to lose a lot of money, but um, it'll it'll hopefully make you more in the long run. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's an, it's a tough experience, and it's very you know emotional and psychological. And um, yeah, I, w- I always tell people that if if I would have done it again, I studied finance in college. If I had to do it again, I probably would have you know at least minored or or majored in psychology because that's it's so much of a bigger piece than, than most people realize in sort of, you know, understanding who's successful and who's not in the markets. Mm. So Ben, so for more information about you and to buy a wealth of common sense, uh, where should my audience go? Yeah, my website is just uh, a wealth of common sense.com. Uh, the book is by the same name. You should be able to find it anywhere that sells books, Barnes and Noble or Amazon. Yeah. Or there's, it's a link on my website. So, uh, you can find all my writing there. And I also, um, have a weekly column for Bloomberg View uh, that you can find. I actually just had a piece out this morning, so uh, so I'm I'm writing there as well. Cool. And are you on uh, social media? You have a Twitter handle. Yeah, uh, social media. My Twitter handle is at uh, a wealth of CS, um, and yeah, I'm pretty active there as well. So feel free to find me there. Well, Ben, thank you again so much for joining me today on the Planet Microcap Podcast. And, uh, you know, I look forward to speaking again soon and uh, to reading your next book. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. No, thank you, Ben. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap Podcast. And thank you, Ben, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap Podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap Podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. Have a great week, everyone. 